0: All right. Hey, before we sit down, before I pray, I wanted to introduce this worship team right quick. I don't know if you know him or not. This is Brother Bob. He's on bass. I'm just going to do first names so you don't stalk them because I know they're very attractive. This is Brother Bob. Please don't say his name backwards. This is Riley on uh, vocals. She does all those cool vocal riffs you're hearing. Steve, the guy on the bald-headed guy in the back, that's Steve. Jody also on vocals, all right, Emma over here today, styling us out, doing very well, Frank on the piano, Miss Sally on maracas, all right, that's it, all right, John over here is running sound, another John on slides, and Cade is running the stream this morning, so would you give him a, Father God, we love you. And we ask you this morning to claim our full attention, to make sure that we're not distracted. I pray, Lord God, today that you would propel us through whatever valleys are in this room to new mountain tops, and through whatever challenges are holding us back or limit us in any way. I pray that we would remember that what the enemy means for evil, you mean for good. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Thanks, worship team. Great job today man, I, I got so excited I forgot my notes, which is bad for you, because if I go without notes, we will be here a while. My wife uh, tells me that all the time. When I first started in ministry, um, I used to teach without notes often, and she goes, you know, your sermons are shorter when you use notes. I think, I think she meant that in love, but uh, I, I really don't know. So, uh, man, just great. Um, if we were to look at Elijah's life, so we're doing we're doing the series on Elijah's life, and if we were to look at his life, you know, from the from the perspective we get of scripture, I mean his life was pretty, you know, normal. And then he got a word from the Lord. And then he shared that word from the Lord. And and so, I don't know if this always happens, but it happens a lot. God shows up, you get a bit of a revelation. And you begin to share it, and this is pretty much what happened to Elijah's life. He got a word from the Lord, he addressed it, and then his life went swoop. And he got to walk through this valley. And in that valley, you know, that's like a three-and-a-half-year valley. I mean, <laughs> that, you know, his friends are going, gee, Elijah, why don't you cheer up? <laughs> he's down in the valley, and then all of a sudden, he gets another word from the Lord, and now he, he's propelled to a mountaintop. So he starts here, finds a new low, then he finds a new high. The mountaintop, and he calls down fire from heaven, and he demolishes paganism in the nation of Israel. And then we're going to come in today, he's coming off that mountaintop of victory, and he gets some uh, bad news. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then he plummets off of that mountaintop into the next valley, and that valley was lower than the first valley. So he went low, went high, new high in his life, lower, low in life. And then from that valley, valley, he climbs, quite literally, to a new mountaintop. And then we're going to tap into the very last moment of his story at the end of this today, where he's uh, taken to not just a new mountaintop, but straight on home, okay? And as as I was thinking about that, I'm like, that is the way the Christian walk is. You get... A revelation, uh, whatever it is, maybe it's a revelation that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, and you begin your Christian walk, and you're like, there's so much out there that tells you, oh man, just follow Jesus, your life will get better, and then you start following Jesus, and your life gets worse. (laughs) That's why we're ordinary faith, man. (laughs) Just tell it like it is, you know. Why is that? Well, God is, he's, it's kind of like, you guys ever fired a, oh man, what's that thing you pull back and... Oh, yeah. Bow and arrow, but slingshot, slingshot. That's right. not, not David, but you know, <laughs> when I was a little boy. Wrist rockets, man, those were cool. They told me, never mind, I better stop. No reminiscing <laughs> through childhood. Those valleys are really just like pulling back on a slingshot to launch you to new heights. And so if you're going through it today, <clears throat> or if you've been through it in the past, or if you think you might go through it in the future, just know that those valleys are launching pads. Also know that one of the most powerful tools of the Christian life, you're not going to like this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, is grief. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And there's grief in this room today. A lot of it, actually. And what we learn from Elijah today in his second and deepest valley is we learn that you have, to, you have to let go of things, but you also have to acknowledge things. The problem with grief in our world today is people just move on, but they don't heal. And what, ha- what you're supposed to do with grief, what you're supposed to do with grief, is you're supposed to know it, acknowledge it, own it, admit that it was bad, I realize that life is one of those things that just keeps coming at you and you just got to keep cowboying up and moving on down the road. But grief is about acknowledging the losses and admitting that it was terrible that they happened and they shouldn't have happened. It was wrong that they happened. And, and letting that go, knowing it was bad, not pretending it wasn't bad, which is what most people do. And so I believe there's a load of grief on this country right now on the church today. Um, The guy wrote Purpose Driven Church. I can't pull his name up right now. Rick something. uh, What she said. (laughs) He said there's a tsunami of grief coming upon America. And I I believe he said that not long after his son took his own life, by the way. So that puts that in a context. I think that's important today because (sighs) champions struggle too. Just because you're struggling doesn't mean you're not going to win. You're not going to be a victor. doesn't mean God is failing your promises. Just because you're in a valley doesn't mean there aren't new mountaintops to come. And if you're on a mountaintop, it doesn't mean there aren't more valleys to come. Just because everything worked out like it did this one time doesn't mean it'll work out like that every time. <clears throat> and so challenges struggle. Your losses matter. And we do acknowledge those. So we want to today we want to do some remembering. We want to mainly remember God's faithfulness to us. How good he's been in our lives. Because when difficult times come, it's hard to remember what he's already done. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but I felt like it was time. (sighs) Some of you this morning feel like you're in trouble. That's my inner wound. You feel like you've messed up, you've made mistakes, you've made bad choices. And you're just in trouble, and if you're going through difficult times, you feel like you deserve them. And you probably do. But Jesus didn't die on a cross and raise from the grave and ascend to the right hand of the Father so you could get what you deserved in life. you got to remember that. That's what grace is about. Yeah, Grace is about being honest about what you deserve, but it's also about being hopeful about what you're going to get. Which is God's goodness poured out toward you. I'm thankful that we don't get what we deserve in life. I'm also thankful that God wants to bless us. He wants to bless you. He wants to bless me. It's something God wants to do. He's not sitting in heaven on the riches of all eternity going, well, you know, we're running a little tight on budget this week, guys. He wants to bless. And so we keep those things in context and we jump into the story of Elijah. Elijah had just had his best day. I mean, his best day. I mean, when's the last time you called down fire from heaven, drowned, burnt out a swimming pool, and destroyed all your enemies all in like 15 minutes? Well, it took all day, but the flash bang was like 15 minutes. And so he had his best day. <sighs> when Ahab got home, this was who Elijah was stationed against, he told Jezebel, that lovely, beautiful woman, Everything Elijah had done including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal now this next verse is kind of funny but Elijah didn't take it that way so Jezebel sent this message to Elijah may the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them this would be the gods Elijah just humiliated on Mount Carmel by the way the gods who couldn't bring rain and the gods who couldn't stop this, this ordinary prophet from calling fire from heaven. These powerless gods, these are the ones she's swearing to. By the way, she lived a long time after this and never got her hands on Elijah. That tells you how powerful her gods are. Right. Pretty funny, I think. But have you ever had a huge victory, a big win in your life, and immediately got depressed? Got laid low the next day by the simplest thing that was said, or just this, just some event that happened. Verse three tells us that Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. Biggest victory of his life, and then he gets that text. I want to make the "you've got mail" sound, but that's not what it was. I mean, you, we don't have that anymore, right? Unless you watch the old Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie. But um, ding, and there's that message from Jezebel. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. I mean, who hasn't got that text before? I'm telling you. From your wife. Um, I mean, he, he should have felt 10 foot tall and bulletproof. He just won the biggest victory of his life. He had just heard a word from the Lord, went through a deep valley with the Lord, come out of that valley, and was propelled to great and astounding victory. And all it took was this one stupid message from this one stupid woman who's claiming the power of her powerless gods to end his life. It, that's, what should have happened was he should have said, delete, unlike something and moved on with his happy life. That, that's what should have happened. But Elijah's an ordinary guy. That's what you got to, he's, he's just like us. And he takes things the way we take them. A, a hundred people could tell me, thank you, you're doing a great job, that really spoke to me today. One person, I didn't like that. Oh my gosh, how am I going to fix it with this one person, you know? And then I would justify it. Well, the 99 are right and that one stray sheep, because I'm always right. But that's not, that's kind of how we work, but that's not how it should be. He accomplished what God gave him to do, and then what God gave him to do, when accomplished well, got him into trouble. Sometimes when you do what God says, it gets you into trouble. And Elijah's in trouble. So I want to walk through this with him today. I want us to take this journey through Elijah's second valley. And I'll be honest with you I'm going to meddle in your business a little bit Because it's what I do It's just a thing I do The purpose is I want you to identify why you're in a valley And then I want you to begin The arduous lengthy process Of walking out of your valley Into your next mountaintop That's my goal today Okay So 1 Kings 19 verse 3 Elijah went to Beersheba A town in Judah and he left his servant there. The servant was probably happy for the break because he'd been running up Mount Carmel all day long, you know, trying to get uh, look for rain. He left him there. Then he went on alone. If you have notes or you're taking notes or you have a Bible and on your computer and you should underline that. He went on alone into the wilderness traveling all day. You should notice that as well. And he sat down under a solitary broom tree, like a juniper tree, like you see in the deserts of Wyoming, actually. And he prayed that he might die. Jezebel wants to kill him, so he wants to lay down and die. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But every one of us can probably identify with the feeling. And so He moves on to verse 6. Verse 3, says, I've had enough, Lord. He says, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. These are the kind of passages I love because they're the kind of passages I can connect with. They're the kind of passages that I'm going, I know how that feels. I've walked that valley. I understand that kind of of exhaustion and tiredness and and just fear and discouragement and so this is where we begin with our valley because a lot of times we just think that's a valley it's like a grave with the ends knocked out it's never gonna end I'm just—I don't know what to do. So I want to ask some questions here because these are ones that have been helpful to me, and I find them in the text. So I I see some things going on. The first thing I see is that Elijah is a guy who had just spent all day, day before, spent all day fighting the prophets of Baal out there with them in that big showdown at Mount Carmel. Uh, He called down fire from heaven. He'd run up to the mountain. He'd prayed for however long it took to get seven trips up to Mount Carmel. He chased down Ahab by foot out ran a chariot to get ahead of ahab that was his day it sounds like a busy one doesn't it and then after the run-in after the text message from jezebel he takes off runs to beersheba drops off his servant walks out into the desert that is a lot for one day so it poses a question for me if you're going through a valley are are you is it possible that you might actually be tired could you be tired? <laughs> I mean, that was a lot to deal with in that valley, and and we live in a world that is more, 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 more. If you work in corporate America, more you got to get more resorts. More, I remember sitting in corporate meetings and in, in, in my uh, life in corporate America that I enjoyed so immensely. Um, and I remember sitting in budget meetings for the next year, and every year it was the same argument. Spend less, make more. Spend less, make more. And I remember we'd gone through three or four or five years of, you know, one year 10 and 15% increases on the previous years. And I, I remember looking at my bosses going, you know, this isn't sustainable, right? We can't have 10 to 15% increases every year. Life moves in cycles. We're going to have you know, a, a drop down. You know what they told me? They didn't say anything. They went right back to work and ignored me like I wasn't even there. You can't just keep adding more. And you can't just cover up the reality that that there's more that needs to be done with saying, well, you just need to prioritize better. If you got 30 priorities, it doesn't matter how you prioritize them. You're bound to fail. You have to realize this. And if you're working in fields that they don't realize that, I feel sorry for you, and you should probably speak up, but you might lose your job. (laughs) So that's always fun. Life comes in seasons. Life comes in seasons. It's supposed to come in seasons. There's supposed to be winters and springs and summers and falls. And if you look at the way the agricultural world worked before we entered into the industrial ages, there was the winter where the soil rested and people rested more too. They slept more. They had to. They didn't have all the lights we have today. When the sun went down, your body got sleepy and when it woke up, it woke up. I know we don't do it that way today, but that's how it used to work. And then spring would hit, and work would begin, and you would begin in earnest to get those crops in. Then summer would hit, and work would steady, plateau out. It was keeping things moving and, and working with the rhythms of the nature and the time and the seasons. Then harvest would hit, and you'd work really hard to get that harvest out, and then winter would be back. So you had seasons of rest, hard work, kind of in the middle there, and then more hard work, and then rest. Your life has to come in seasons. If your life isn't coming in seasons where you have seasons where you're pushing it kind of hard and then seasons where you're also able to rest, here it is. Lay it out for you nice and simple. This is actually more for me than you. You're doing it wrong. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Bruce. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) That was not a comment on my point, but I'm sitting there going, why is Bruce mad? Anyway, so I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So my point is, are you tired? Because if you're tired, that will produce a valley all by itself. And then you just need to rest. And rest isn't distraction. And rest isn't neglect. Rest is rest. And rest is a weapon, but that's another sermon for another time. But rest. Are you tired? Second thing, are you alone? I got to wonder if Elijah had not left his servant in Beersheba. If his valley would have been as deep and as extended as it was. I'm just wondering. But the reality is, is that we go through these dark seasons, these difficult times, and we push people away. In a lot of different ways. And it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. It doesn't matter if you're an internal processor or an external processor. It it just... You can be an, an extrovert and an external processor and gather people around you and be just as lonely as anyone else I've seen it with my own eyes witnessed it. So if you find yourself alone like you're feeling alone I've talked to people like this all the time. They're in marriages. They have children around them, they have busy lives and they feel Absolutely isolated Why do you feel alone? Why Uh, men, a a problem that men have is they feel like they're helicopters around their family rather than part of their family. They feel like they're doing all this work on the outside to make sure it survives, but they're never actually inside wrapped around its love and support. Why are we alone? And and I get it some, and so I'm speaking as a guy who has struggled with this, I I get it because when I am, uh, we'll use the word grumpy. You probably don't get grumpy. I do uh, Sunday through Saturday, pretty grumpy. (laughs) (sighs) I get grumpy, and I I do. I push people away. uh, My wife would testify if she's in here. She would amen me. And part of it is that I'm like, I I feel so uh, grumpy on the inside or angry or frustrated or sad or whatever it is on the inside that I don't want to hurt anybody. So, like, stay out there. Grumpy bears in town, just stay out there. I don't want to hurt you. Uh, but that's not healthy. It's one thing to need some solitude and some quiet places, and I believe that's biblical and scriptural, and we're actually going to come to that in just a minute. But it is not okay to be alone. In fact, a Christian who is alone is actually not a thing. Because when you bring God into your life, when you enthrone Jesus as the Lord of your life, you are never going to be alone again. You may ignore God, but he will not leave you, okay? And so if you're alone, that is not a healthy place to be. If you're tired, that's not a healthy place to be. And you'll get toxic in those places, and you'll become a self-feeding frenzy of darkness, of stress. It will take you down a rabbit hole you don't want to go down, and you have an enemy that works in dark places who's trying to kill all of you. And you can't let that happen if I could advise, uh, advise is not the right word, but you know, guys, does your wife talk to the men for a minute? Does your wife ever, I I don't know. I call it spider webbing. Um, she starts talking and like three weeks later, you're like, honey, I got to (laughs) eat. You're like, Michael, it's never three weeks, three hours, but not three weeks. Do you know what's going on guys? I don't know if you know this but in the Garden of Eden Eve was dealing with the with Satan and the Bible tells us that Adam was right there with her and he never said a word he was in the place of temptation but he was not part of the conversation and so ever, I believe ever since that moment of abandonment where Adam was there, but he was not there. And I think this is a weakness of men. I hate to be stereotypical, but we men are really good at not being present. We're preoccupied. We're thinking about the future. We're thinking about the past or we're living in regrets and we're not in the moment we're in. And so when your wife starts spider webbing or she gets manic or whatever it is, she starts talking and you're like, Oh dear Lord, (laughs) here we go. I do wish Christy was in here, so I would get in less trouble, because I know what you're going to tell her later. (laughs) All right? (sighs) What she's trying to do is, one, process her inner world, and two, she needs you to be present until she's stable again. Something's throwing your wife off balance, and love is waiting. Love is patient. Love is kind. And it's not in Paul's writing, but I would also say love is presence. So if you guys will hang on, she'll come back to you. You're like, well, I get tired. (laughs) It's okay. Your wife's worth it. And her knowing that you're there for her is going to be worth way more reward than that nap you could have taken or that golf ball you could have smacked or whatever it is. Ladies, your husbands, since I picked on them, let me pick on you, I guess. Or not pick on, but just give you a little lesson Again, I am dealing a little bit in stereotypes, and not every couple works this way. But, you know, sometimes your man starts stonewalling you. You know what I'm talking about? Like, he shuts down. And uh, why does he do that? Well, typically, women, a lot of women, to borrow the stereotype, they work things out uh, externally. They talk it out. They use words, and they like words. Lots and lots of words. (laughs) It's been, it's been said that, what, men use about 30,000 words and women use about 60, but then a woman would say, yeah, but we have to repeat everything we say, so there, there is that. <laughs> They're not wrong, okay? But what we men do is we do wall ourselves off. We tend to isolate ourselves, and that's okay for a little bit. As long as everybody knows what's going on, it's okay, all right? Uh, here's how Chris and I navigated it because for a lot of years of our marriage, uh, every time I would get like, I need some solitude, some isolation, she would get feeling abandonment and then the fight would break out and the worst time ever. I mean, the, the worst versions of us were present and it would create these, these challenges, these problems, or these arguments, fights, uh, I don't know if you know what those are, but you know, we have them, we had them, we still have them. One of the things that helped us was two things. One was a communication, which all men are very strong at communicating. <laughs> and it, it was, we learned it from another pastor or a, a conference we went to, but the guy just taught us, listen, when those times come, just say to your wife, we're okay. We're okay. I, I just need a little space to work something out. That's it. It's amazing. That was like a magic bullet in our marriage. I mean, it's just like, boom, she understood. Okay, we're okay. He just needs some space. However, you are going to believe this, but I've got some toxic behaviors too. And I can go down the rabbit hole and not come out. And so I've got some people in my life who annoyingly come after me. (sighs) (laughs) One of them is my wife. Some of them are some people on our leadership team here at Order of Faith and some friends in my life. But I'm telling you, I can go down that, that dark place and stay there. So it's nice and cool down here and nobody's talking to me. Hallelujah, leave me alone. And my wife knows me well enough after 35 years, she knows when to come and get me. Sometimes, ladies, even though he comes out of that hole like a grumpy bear after hibernation, you still have to go get the guy. So, Michael, that didn't help any at all. No, but now at least you know what's going on. (laughs) And since we're on the family, your children need you to be there for them. They They need to know that you're not abandoning them, not neglecting them. Sometimes they need to be held, even if they don't want to be. Sometimes they need to figure things out. But the main thing they need is you to be present. Okay? So, are you tired? Well, if you're tired, it's time to get a season of rest. Are, are you alone? Alone is not good. We learned that in Genesis chapter 2. It's not good for man to be alone. Okay? Uh, and the next thing is, are you praying? I love how Elijah begins praying in 1 Kings 19. It's, it is a prayer, but it's not praying yet. It's a prayer that says, okay, God, I've, it's over, I'm done, just kill me now. That, that's basically the prayer. And I don't know if you ever prayed that prayer, but that was the kind of prayer Elijah prayed. And, and it's okay for prayer to start there, because whatever gets you started praying, get to praying, okay? But that's not actually prayer. Prayer is not dictating to the God of the universe, how he should do things. That is not prayer. And that's what we do all the time. And we do it in Jesus name. Like we can really direct the God of the universe. Okay. You can't. All right. And you shouldn't even try. But if you'll start praying, even beginning there, we'll begin to work on the main person in this prayer that needs to change. And it ain't God. It's you and it's me. And so Elijah begins telling God what God should do, how God should deal with this mess that he's going through. And so I'm not saying that prayer was worthless, but it is a place to pray and so, or to begin. And so I say, pray, start praying and pray until you can listen. Prayer is all about finding a larger solution to whatever problem you're facing than you can think up. Prayer is about going outside of you. It's about going to the God of the universe and him finding a solution that's beyond anything you ever even hope for or dream for. So if we pray until we can listen and then we pray until we can come to some understanding, the God of the universe and you in some kind of understanding, I know that sounds impossible. I mean, it would, to me, if I hadn't, didn't have a prayer life and have a relationship with God, that those kinds of things actually existed. But you can pray until you're open to new possibilities. And you can pray until you can begin to understand that God loves you. He cares about you. He wants better for you than you want for you. God wants better for you than you want for you. Pray until you listen. Pray until you can understand. And then pray until you have peace. My dad taught me that one. By the way, I had a great conversation with my dad yesterday. It was a real blessing. We and I hadn't had a chance to talk in a while because of his condition, and yesterday was a blessing. So what I mean by praying until you have peace is my dad would always ask me when I was facing a challenge or a decision. He'd say, well, do you have peace, son? And of course I didn't have peace. I was on my phone talking to dad about it, ranting about something. And he would just say that. Well, don't do anything until you have peace. Why are we in such a hurry? Why do we need God to answer this very moment? Why why do we need the miracle this instant? It'd be like, we asked, if you went to college for a degree in engineering and you wanted your diploma the first day, you'd have to pay someone a lot of money. I mean, uh, that doesn't work that way. (laughs) Why do we think God works that way? The God who's eternal. The God who doesn't even own a watch. The God who... Time is irrelevant to Him because He can go back and work in past moments just like He can future moments or present moments. So why are we worried? Why do we put these constraints on God? So pray until you can listen. Pray until you understand. Pray until you have peace. The peace that doesn't make sense. And the last question, to ask yourself, are you tired? Are you alone? Are you praying? And the last one, and this is so critical, where is your hope? And we as American Christians, all the Christians of the Western world need to answer this question right now, at this point in history, a time when I believe, I've recently come to believe that God is moving in a way similar to how he moved when Jesus walked the earth, similar to how he moved when uh, the nation of Israel walked out of Egypt. God is connected with our time period in a very significant way right now. And so in that season, where is your hope? Because, I'm, you know, I, I do follow the Facebook feed. I hear the things that people are saying about the world we live in and their concerns about our political realities, our financial realities, and all these kinds of things. And what I'm hearing is people are putting hope in what might be, what they want to be, rather than in God himself. So the Bible says in Psalms chapter 42, verse 5, Why am I discouraged? We need to write this verse down. We need to memorize it. We need to pray it every time we get in a hole about the situation in our world, cities, communities, whatever. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I have an answer. I have a solution. I know the way out of this sadness and depression. I'll put my hope in God. I will praise God again, my Savior and my God. How do you... Thank you. How do you think the early church... They, they had no political hope. They had no freedoms. They had no money. They weren't, Half of them weren't allowed to work because they were part of guilds that were ungodly and pagan. That's where they got their training. Like if you're a mason and you couldn't be a part of the guild or like an u- ancient union, you couldn't work if you were a Christian. Where was their hope? How could they ever be happy? Their life was hard. They had their possessions taken away, their homes stolen from them by evil people, and yet they were still filled with joy and hope. How did they do that their hope was not in Rome their hope was not in a local government city government or their economic future their hope was in God so where's your hope I realize valleys are hard and they're dark and they hurt and even though I, I believe and know that a valley will propel you to your next mountaintop when you're in that valley you've got to remember your hope is not in getting out of the valley Your hope is in the God who's the God of the valley, just like He is the mountain top. Amen? That's where our hope is. So where is your hope in these situations? Now, when you find yourself in a valley, uh, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Are you a citizen of earth or a citizen of the kingdom? Is this your life or is that your life? Because if this is your life, then the world is right. You only get so many days. If this is your life then you better live it to the fullest and as Paul himself said eat drink for tomorrow we die but if the kingdom is your life if heaven is your life if the father and the son the spirit the future eternity if that's your life then this life it's like basic training this life is like warming up in fact this life isn't even life yet this life is birth this life is moving from uh, what you weren't to what you're going to be does that make sense and so move our hope will change our entire attitude and propel us out of a valley so here's some ways to get out of the valley okay so if you're in a valley those are some ways that we might be there here's some ways to get out of the valley um, before i do a little disclaimer everybody wants a magic bullet some kind of pill i mean i could probably sell jesus pills i should try it see if we could fund a building <laughs> who was it? sold bricks buy a brick i mean it was like 10 years they were selling bricks um maybe longer um jesus pills everybody wants that fast solution even doctors today as they treat people they they look for drug solutions because people don't want to entertain longer term foundational solutions so everybody likes that so but here's what i need you to know there's no magic pill out of the valley there's no elevator out of the valley there's no trains running through the valley no 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 buses nothing i mean you're going to walk out of the valley, and it will be slow and tedious, and one day you'll look back and realize you came farther than you realized. That's how valleys work, all right? Of course, there's those slingshot moments, but still. So that's the disclaimer. First Kings 19.7, back in the story, Elijah's laying all around in his valley. Oh, I just want to die. Everything is awful. I had this amazing victory, and someone sent me a nasty text. Oh, my goodness. I just wanted to be over. So God sends an angel. You know God's good, right? The story of Elijah really nails down the goodness of God for me. So in verse uh, 7, the angel of the Lord came again, touched him. Get up and eat some more On the, or the journey ahead of you will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank and the food he gave him and then the food gave him enough strength to travel for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai to the mountain of God. So there's a path out of the valley. And this, it's funny because that first valley was deep. I think the second valley was deeper, but he got through it way faster. And, and so the angel shows up and he tells Elijah to eat something. <laughs> and, and we already know he took a nap. So lunch and a nap. That's what I'm hearing. Do you know what the first lesson I learned in kindergarten was? Do you remember kindergarten? Do you remember being able to take a snapping mat out in public and it was totally acceptable? Do you remember that? Do you realize how much better life would be today if we all had a nap, napping backpack we carried everywhere? I mean, and like from 2 to 4 every day, it was just nap time every day. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because you could like go to work and go, well, you know, this morning's terrible but nap time's coming. <laughs> it's a nap coming. I think everyone would be happier if we took naps. I'm, I'm just saying. So, so I'm, I'm, obviously I'm having a little bit of fun. But here's Elijah, and it's funny to me that the angel says to him, here, eat something. And then he says, here, eat some more, which is why I'm chubby. Uh, but anyway, the Lord said eat twice, and I take that seriously. <sighs> but I do see a lesson here that we forget, and that's simply this. You're, this body you live in Needs fuel And it needs good fuel It needs something that will actually trans, it will Carry you through the journey And this is important because A lot of times, this is what I've seen in my own life So I'll just teach it me for a second so you won't feel so weird But a lot of times in my life My life feels like chaos And I just want to eat something because what I really need is peace And so I'll just grab some chaos to eat Thinking it'll give me peace I mean, I love pizza, but it hates me at this point. We were fine in my 20s. In my 50s, pizza hates me. I don't know what's wrong. You can't consume chaos though and find rest. And this mind that lives in a body is dependent upon this body to fuel it. So one of the things you can do to get out of the valley uh, is uh, is fuel your body and take a nap. And I'm not even kidding. This is right in the text. Hey, are you tired? Maybe maybe you need to fuel up or nap out, whatever it is you want to call it. You know, Paul wrote in Ephesians, he wrote to the believers there, he says, Awaken out of your spiritual slumber. Wake up. And I kind of wonder if one of the reasons that people have a hard time waking up today is because they never truly rest. They're just too weak, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. They're just drained, and they keep getting more drained, and they never fuel up. So, fuel your body. It carries your brain. Then he came to a cave, and where he spent the night, but the Lord said, what are you doing here, Elijah? God did not know why Elijah was there. Is that not hilarious? That's pretty funny. Why why are you here? Here's Elijah's answer. Second point. First first way out, fuel your body. Second point. Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. And that's true. That's good. No, Nothing wrong with what he just says there. But look where he comes in with that hammer, that hammer, mic drop at the end. I've served the Lord, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now they're saying they want to kill me too. Second way out of the valley is to get past the stuff that you believe that ain't true, to borrow Mark Twain's expression. Elijah believed he was the only one left, which is even in the text not true. Because in verse chapter 17 of 1 Kings, we meet Obadiah, and Obadiah had hidden the prophets of the Lord to protect them, hundreds of them. Obadiah himself was a faithful man on the king's council, and he knew Elijah, and here Elijah is in such a hole mentally that he's thinking, I'm the only one. And we can identify, can't we? I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's lived what I've lived, gone through what I've gone through, who feels like I feel, who suffers like I suffer, who's in the marriage I'm in, who has the kids that I have, who has the job that I have. I'm the only one. No one can understand what's going on. And that's a lie. That's a lie. It's not true. You're not the only one. You're not by yourself. You couldn't be alone if you tried. The day you put Christ on the throne in your life, you he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't really care what you do, he's gonna stick with you. Be careful where you take him, but that's another sermon for another time. So many of the things that we're angriest about in our lives are things that we're wrong about. And so let us learn to learn the truth. I'll never get this. That's not true. Because I can do all things through Christ. It's impossible. That's not true, because with God, all things are possible. Things will never change. That's not true, because everything will be shaken and going to be shaken. That means that everything's going to change. No one understands. Not true. Jesus was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. He's been there. He's done that, and He He did it well. I might as well quit. Not true. Not true. Not true. You're a victor in waiting, not a failure in the making. You're just waiting for your victory. You're waiting to win. The world is better off without me. Not true. You're God's creation for God's purpose. Your past is not your future. You hear me? The stuff we believe that ain't true, the enemy will use to kill us, to depress us, to push us down. So it's time to hear some truth, to know some things that are real. So the path out of the valley is learning the stuff we believe that ain't true and getting it out of there. So 1 Kings 19, God change, works on Elijah. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. Being from Wyoming, we, can, we know what that's about. I'm come this afternoon in case you don't. <laughs> Such a terrible blast, the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. I take that as a comfort. The Lord's not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. A sound of a gentle whisper. Feel your body. And remember that stillness is better than busyness. To hear God's voice, you have to pay attention. One of my favorite films is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I've seen the, the version that came out about 10 years ago. There is an earlier one. I didn't know it was a remake till recently, and I haven't seen that one yet. It's based on a short story. And in the short story is this line that did make it into the movie, but it says, beautiful things do not demand our attention. Beautiful things do not demand our attention. Nothing's more beautiful than God. God does not demand our attention, but He requires it. He requires it to be known. He he requires it to be in relationship. And that's where stillness comes in. You see, God wasn't in the wind, and He wasn't in the earthquake, and He wasn't in the fire. Those are all things that demand attention. God was in the stillness, God was in the quiet place, God was in that moment of rest, that hesitation. Between one moment of chaos to the next, that's where God was. And if we can learn to live in those moments of stillness, to, to gaze upon who God is and his beauty and his might, if we could just learn to be still. But here's the problem. When you're going through a valley and your life is chaos, the last thing you want to do is be still. Be still. In fact, what happens is we get in those moments and we get afraid and we get frustrated and we feel like we have to be doing something and we need to be doing it very quickly and we need to be doing a lot, but we have no idea what to do, actually. And so doing nothing never occurs to us, so we just do something until we exhaust ourselves even more. So stillness isn't about doing... it is about doing something. It's about being still. It's about resting It's not about just filling your life with activity, trying to ignore the valley you're in. It's not about just trying enough things until you find that lucky thing that gets you out of the valley. Stillness is about sitting there and letting God speak His truth to you and letting God breathe over you. And you know what God did for Elijah? God stepped into Elijah's moment at this new mountaintop he's on. I mean, he just comes to this valley, climbs this mountaintop. He's still depressed. He's still down. And what does God do for him? Say, well, Elijah, it's okay. Pat him on the back. Just sit down and rest a while no he says hey man you got work to do that was God's answer I got some stuff for you to do I got some people I want you to anoint as king I want you to go find Elisha and I want you to get him ready to take your spot And I want you to do some things for me. And what is that? What was God doing? When God gives you orders, when God gives you word, He is inspiring you. That's what inspiration is. That's the Holy Spirit's work, to inspire. So He's giving Elijah this inspiration to carry on. And here's the thing. You in this room right now, this moment, whatever valley you're in, you have purpose. You have a reason. You are needed. Someone needs you. There is a need in your community. There's a hope that you're meant to be for someone else. You have to see that you have purpose and God's not done with you yet. You'll know when he's done because I'll be doing your funeral. That's how you'll know. And that's the first thing I'll say. Well, there, there lies Steve. God was done. Let's go home. I might say a couple other things. But we assume and I outlive Steve, which is a very dangerous assumption, but still... Verse nineteen fifteen tells us what God said to him. I'm going to jump to the end. You're not done. You're not done. You need inspiration. God has more for you to do. The last bit of hope I want to give you is this. I want you to see that Elijah was kind of a screw-up. He didn't have it all figured out, did he? He got a word from the Lord. He was impatient. He got discouraged. He made some bad choices. Pushed himself out there all by himself when he didn't need to. Pushed himself beyond his limits when he wasn't commanded to. He did a lot of things like that. He made a lot of mistakes. And yet, even though Elijah was kind of a mess now, we we see this guy's kind of normal, gets a word from the Lord, heads to a valley, new mountaintop, new valley, back to a mountaintop. Now, what's God going to do? Now is God just going to shake his head at Elijah's life the rest of his living days? Oh man, Elijah, that guy's a wreck. There's nothing I can do for him. Is that what God's going to do? No, that's not. In fact, Elijah's the only guy in the New Testament who got an Uber from God. A God Uber. An Enoch got a walk. I think God Uber's cooler. But anyway, as they were walking along, this is Elisha and Elijah, and they're talking, suddenly... A chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them. Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, see the chariots and charioteers of Israel as they disappeared from sight. And Elisha tore his clothes in distress. I want you to see in this that Elijah made mistakes and, to, and God still came and picked him up. God still carried him off to heaven. That... That's how good God is. Your stupidity will never make God worse or bad or less than any of that to you. You understand that, right? Elijah could be a mess and God still comes and picks him up. He gets one of the greatest exits in the history of the Bible. You see? I know sometimes we have to uh, deal with ourselves and address our failings and be honest about those. I get that. It's something that needs to happen. But God's call for you is always just to come right back to him. God's always calling home. Just come home. Come back to me. It's not that he doesn't care that you failed. It's that he paid for the failure. That it's covered in the blood of Jesus. You get that, right? I'm begging you to get that. To stop wasting your life in regret. Stop walking the shadows of a valley when the sun is dawned on that valley. Stop beating yourself up in a place of lowness and inadequacy and insecurity and start to rise up into God's purpose for your life. Because all those failures that you're adding up and tallying up on your sheet, God is turning into a work of art. They're not failures to God. They're just pieces of your masterpiece. That's what they are. Because everything the enemy means for evil and every stupid thing you've ever done to add to whatever he did that was evil, God is working into something that's good and beautiful and the masterpiece that is your life. You can trust Him. That's where your hope is. Not in your ability. Not in what you can accomplish. But in your God. Let's pray. Father God... Thank you. Gone a little long today. I pray, dear God, that you would give this body hope. I pray that you would remove that cloud of defeat and insecurity and fear. I pray that you would cut the, bond, the, bond, the bonds that hold people back, often sins that we hold dear. And I pray, Lord God, that you would draw us close to you. And I pray that there would be hope. And I pray you would give it to every person in this room. In Jesus' name. We're going to sing. I'm going to be over here and I'd love to pray for you if I can help with that today. Pastor Steve.